Please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be picking up today in verse 24. Jesus is ministering in parables, as we discovered last week. Jesus beginning to speak to the people in parables. Parable meaning a story told alongside a spiritual truth. And Jesus is going to be speaking about the kingdom. I've entitled today's message, The Kingdom is Like, and then we'll fill in what Jesus illuminates for us. And this is an important study for Jesus and his, his day because there was quite a bit of expectation about the kingdom of God. This whole idea of Jesus having promised Israel a Messiah, and they had a lot of preconceived ideas of who the Messiah would be, what he might be like, and what the kingdom would be like when the Messiah came to usher in the kingdom. And Jesus is, is here teaching and letting them know that the, the kingdom is going to be significantly different than what they had anticipated. Now, there is coming a full measure of an earthly kingdom that will, that will arrive when Jesus returns, but at his first advent, Jesus is, did not come to fulfill a worldly political kingdom, but rather he came, as, as one commentator said, not to fulfill a geographic location, but a spiritual realm where God rules and where believers share in his eternal life. We join that kingdom when we trust in Christ as our Savior. So Jesus is going to have to kind of reset their thinking. It's always dangerous when we begin to kind of preconceive what God wants to do, what God is going to do. We set ourselves up sometimes for disappointment. The truth is many in Jesus' generation missed the reality of their Messiah because he didn't fit the preconceived ideas that they had for him. We want our hearts and minds to be open and surrendered to God's plan and purpose. We don't want to be kind of setting the agenda for the Lord and then become frustrated when he doesn't fulfill the, the preconceived ideas that we hold. Now, we, we really need to allow the Lord to direct our steps and not presume and not project our own expectations on the Lord. With that in mind, let's take a look at Jesus, who is now going to begin to speak about the kingdom of God. Things here for us to learn as well. The first parable that we will look at today, verse 24 is the parable concerning the wheat and the tares. Pick it up with me now. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus, again, speaking in a language that 
these people would have clearly understood. An agricultural-based society, he's talking again about farming. You remember last week we talked about the, the seeds that were sown by, on different soil. Some of the seed fell amongst the thorns, and the thorns represented the cares of this world, the cares of life, the deceitfulness of riches, choking out the fruitfulness of God's word in our hearts. This is similar in that it's, it's, it has to do with seeds in a field, but it's different because here we see an enemy. It's not just seeds randomly falling amongst thorns. These are seeds purposefully sown, tares, weeds, purposefully sown into the field to do harm and damage to the harvest. Darnell weed is what it most likely references, and it looks very much like wheat in the early stages of growth, but becomes distinguishable when the heads of wheat appear. These tares would intermingle with the wheat, a work of an enemy. So much so that even the Roman culture of the day, they had a specific law against such a practice because this was something that people would do to you know, disrupt their enemies. And it was against the law. Jesus now is going to explain this parable. It would be later in our chapter, and I'm going to ask you to skip ahead with me to verse 36. Now, we'll come back and pick up the verses in between. But since we're re we just read the parable, let's also read now the explanation of the parable. It would be later, after Jesus' teaching, the disciples would come and say, Hey, what's up with the wheat and the tares? Give us the understanding of that. That's what we find in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Jesus is going to give them a very clear definition. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus himself. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is giving us a look at what the kingdom will be until he returns at the end of the age. What the kingdom will look like during this time in which we wait, but also what will take place when he returns at the end of the age, the day of judgment. And what's he, what he lets us know is that the children of the kingdom, those that have come to faith in Christ, they will coexist with the children of the evil one, those who have been sown by the devil. And not only is this true in, in the world, but in some cases it's true even within the church. You have those that are, they look like wheat, but they're not really wheat. They're actually here for, you know, unsincere motives. But in Jesus's parable, he said the field represents the world. 
And he's identifying for us that, listen, there's going to be evil coexisting in the world even while God is preparing the harvest, even while God is sowing the wheat. You know, oftentimes we wonder, Lord, why are you allowing such evil to to exist in the earth? Why do you allow so many things to take place? We can't fathom why a sovereign God would allow such, such trouble. But Jesus is telling us, this is the way it will be until the end of the age. These these things will coexist. You know, I was at a pastor's seminar some months back, and a guest speaker was there, a a Calvary Chapel pastor by the name of Mike McIntosh, and he, he shared with us, and he had just returned from a trip to Iraq. And he had seen some of the surrounding areas and seen some of the things that were going on with ISIS and the terrorist group that was really, uh, you know, bringing such, such uh, havoc there in the region. And the stories that he shared with us were almost, they, they were heartbreaking. It was almost overwhelming. It was almost hard to hear it. He had, he had a chance to interview some of these young girls who had been rescued and escaped out of this sexual uh, uh, trade that, that's going on rampantly there. ISIS is going in and they're capturing these young teenage girls, young women, and taking, calling them off and then selling them for, sec, for, for financial gain into a sex trade market. And he said he got to, again, meet some of these girls, pray with them and hear their stories. And they are heartbreaking. You hear it and you wonder, God, how can such evil even be allowed to exist on the planet? How can these things be be taking place? Lord, what's going on? You know, I think even in our own culture, maybe maybe you've been moved. I know I have in recent days, just seeing on the news, some of the things going on in in the the abortion industry of our own nation. You know, some of the, 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 the fetuses that are being harvested for different tissues and the doctors talking so casually about how they access the liver and certain organ tissues and then they sell them to the highest bidder to help finance the operation. I can't, it's hard to imagine that that's legal and something that we as a nation are allowing to take place and yet it, it exists. It exists. The scripture tells us clearly that these evils will exist until the day that Jesus comes and settles all accounts. This is the nature of the kingdom of God during this time. Paul would tell us in Romans, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are called to live in this generation, in these days. We are called to be that salt and that light. How long, Lord, will you tarry? How long will these things take place? Billy Graham was interviewed some years back by Larry King on Larry King Live. And Larry King asked Billy Graham, he said, Billy, are things getting worse? And Billy Graham answered, he said, yes. Larry, they are. Things are getting worse, but things are also getting better. And he quoted this passage of the wheat and the tares. He said, because just as the tares are growing and the evil is growing, so is the wheat ripening. And so is the day of our redemption drawing near. 
And yes, even though things are growing worse, so are things growing better. There is a harvest that is being prepared. And Jesus is getting those hearts ready to come and gather. Why does he tarry? Why does the Lord not just return and bring an end to this conflict? Peter tells us something of the Lord's heart. You don't need to turn, but you may remember this passage. It's out of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter tells us why the Lord tarries, why the Lord delays his coming, why the Lord is waiting to bring in a harvest, because... He's long-suffering because he's patiently waiting for all that can be a part of the wheat to come into ripened time. The Lord is delaying because there's still opportunity for some to be saved. The Lord waits because of his heart to save and rescue all that can come to faith in Christ. But make no mistake, church, the harvest is coming. That's what Peter was addressing in his letter. Listen, some think the Lord, because he sl is slow about his promise, some think maybe he won't keep his promise. The Lord is not slow about his promise. The Lord is patient, but the promise is sure. The harvest is coming. Jesus said again in our text, verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus speaks very clearly of a judgment and a, and a place of hell and torment. Jesus would speak more of hell than any, any other uh, person in the New Testament. Verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus wants to be very clear about this day that is coming, that it will come, it may tarry, but it will arrive. And that's the time that we need to be prepared for as we give place to the kingdom of God in our own lives. Let's move on in our text. The next uh, group of parables that we see here are the mustard seed and the leaven. The mustard seed and the leaven. Look with me now, back up into verse 31. Matthew 13, 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Jesus speaking about something small becoming something larger, something more pervasive. There are two main views of interpreting this parable. Now, we're blessed in the New Testament when the disciples asked Jesus to explain a parable. That helps us because then we get to hear Jesus' explanation. 
But they didn't ask on every parable, or, or we don't have it recorded, him explaining every parable. So we're left to try and discern what it is he's speaking about here. And as I said, there are two main views. And what I want to share is both of them with you, because both of them are biblically you know, correct in other ways and have good application. So I think we're safe in either way that we might view these parables. Uh, the first view is this. That in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus is continuing to warn us of corruptive influences within the kingdom. Just as the tares are a corruptive and evil force engaged against and with the kingdom, so these parables illustrate more corruption among us. Uh, the mustard seed is a small seed that plants, planted in a garden becomes one of the largest herbs in the garden, but a normal mustard seed does not grow into a tree, but rather just a large shrub where birds can gather. So the view here is that because Jesus says it grows into a tree, he's actually describing something of an unnatural growth. This, this, this becomes even larger than anticipated, and it makes room for the birds to gather in its branches. Now you remember from the earlier parable, the seeds of the, of, of the sower, the seed that fell on the wayside, they were gathered and carried away by who? The birds of the air. The birds represented the agents of Satan coming and stealing away the word. So in similar fashion, commentators, Bible teachers see these birds as a force of evil, a corrupt force gathered in the kingdom. And that would be a consistent view of these birds as agents of Satan. Listen to one commentator named Morgan. Birds lodging in the branches most probably refers to elements of corruption which take refuge in the very shadow of Christianity. Now this would be true in the, in the history that would follow Jesus' day as the Roman Empire grew and, and became Christianized in some regard. It also became very politicized and became really something very corrupt. The, early, the church became, as it, as it grew in influence and power, many looked for self-advancement and power within the guise of the church, like birds nesting there for evil purposes. And we know that the scriptures warn us against this kind of infiltration. Paul, and again, you don't need to turn, but let me remind you out of Acts chapter 20, what he said to the early church at Ephesus. Now, this is just a few years of the church even existing. Already, there, were this, there was this type of corruption. Paul said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So we can see it may be that Jesus is simply warning, look, you're going to have to remain vigilant in the kingdom because these corruptive forces are going to be looking to make their way even into the kingdom of God. Leaven. Leaven is often a, a corruptive symbol in the scriptures representing sin and impurity. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns of the leaven uh, of, of sinful practices being allowed and tolerated in the church. In Galatians, he speaks of the leaven of false doctrine being tolerated within the church. So leaven, it may be, is representing, it says that she hid the le- leaven in the dough, in the meal. And so it may be Jesus' warning, look, be on guard for the kingdom. There will be corruptive forces. And we can certainly say that is true, can't we? Even today, don't we see the church being compromised in so many ways? We see even mainline denominations that were once strong and vigilant now becoming compromised for the political correctness of our time. And we see all kinds of compromising even in the guise of the church. So we must remain vigilant. We must be watchful. We must hold true to the scriptural instruction, to the gospel, to the things that we know to be true handed down to us by God himself through the word. That's one view of interpreting these parables. A second view takes it just a little bit more of a simple view saying, listen, it's really just Jesus talking about the early church being small and insignificant, growing over time and becoming a major force in the world in generations to come. Now, I think it would be wrong to imagine that somehow uh, the world is going to eventually be Christianized by the church. We don't see that happening. But we can say that even though evil has you know, come against the church, the church has, in fact, continued to grow. The church has continued to influence the world. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And we can see that there is a true church. There is always a remnant of true believers that are advancing the kingdom of God. And in that sense, even though small and insignificant as a mustard seed might be, it does grow and begin to dominate a garden. And so leaven begins to permeate and affect culture. And we have an opportunity to also represent the Lord as salt and light in our generation. Now again, not to the point of we're going to somehow rid the world of evil, but we are certainly have an opportunity to impact the world with the gospel. Listen to what one commentator says. When the kingdom of heaven is faithfully reflected in the lives of believers, its influence in the world is both pervasive and positive. The life of Christ within believers is spiritual and moral leavening in the world. A Christian does not have to be a national leader, a famous entertainer, or a sports figure to influence the world for his Lord. It is the power of God's kingdom within a believer that makes his witness effective. And that is the influence on the world that Christians should seek to have. So that's a true spiritual spiritual application as well. We may be small, we may seem insignificant, but we have the power of God, the gospel, to help affect the world around us. You remember that the prophet Zechariah came to encourage a man in in his day, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who was there to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And you remember the words that the Lord encouraged him with. He said, listen, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
And he goes on to say, for who has despised the day of small things? Zerubbabel, don't be discouraged with small beginnings. Don't be discouraged with just what looks to be like something weak and insignificant because it's not going to be by power and might. It's going to be by the Spirit of God that His will and purpose and kingdom are going to be advanced. And I believe that's, good. that's a good exhort- exhortation for us as well. Let us not become overwhelmed and discouraged, but rather let us be faithful to do what God has called us to do because it's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by any cunning or wisdom of man. It's going to be by the Spirit of God working through the lives of His people, you and I. If God is for us, who can be against us? Back to our text there in Matthew. Jesus, uh, Matthew actually reminds us of why Jesus is speaking in parables. Look with me again in verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept, in, kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew reminding us, look, this is why Jesus was teaching in parables. He's trying to reveal truth to his followers but he's keeping secret these principles from those who have hardened their hearts against him. So as we mine out the truth from these parables, it is for those that are sincere in heart. It is for those who are after the truth that God reveals truth. Let's finish up here with a couple more parables and we'll close. I want to talk to you now in verse 44 about the hidden treasure of the uh, and the pearl of great price. We'd already covered the explanation of the, of the wheat and the tares, so jump now again down with me to verse 44, and let's look at these parables together. Again, keep talking about the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This hidden treasure, this pearl of great price. Again, two main views that I find both to be really applicable in our understanding. Here's one view of these two these two um, parables, that both the treasure and the pearl of great price are in fact the gift of salvation that is discovered when someone comes to faith in Christ. Boy, that would be true, wouldn't it? Coming to faith in Christ, it should be a great treasure. It should be the pearl of great price. What else compares to your salvation? What else can you compare in value or in worth or in priority to having the knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing that not only has He met you in this life, but He has saved you for eternal life. That is the greatest thing you can discover in this life, is Christ. It it is the hidden treasure. It is the pearl of great price. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said, he's my treasure. He's the pearl of greatest value. Nothing else that I thought was important, nothing else that I thought was gain, nothing else that I really had my priority on even compares. I count it today as rubbish. It's worthless compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. My sins are forgiven. I have peace with God. I have a future and a hope in this life and in eternity to come. I have found the greatest treasure of all, and it's Jesus Oh, that's a good truth. I want to encourage your heart today. Is Jesus that treasure? Is Jesus that pearl of great price in your heart today? He should be. He's worth that kind of devotion, that kind of love. The second view on these two parables, I believe, is equally as true. And it, it, it sees these parables this way. That, in fact, the believers themselves, you and I, who have come to faith in Christ... We are the treasure and the pearls of great price to the Lord. After all, isn't he the one that came and purchased us for himself? The man, it says that the man went and, saw, went and, and purchased this field where the treasure existed. Isn't that what Jesus did at the cross? Didn't Jesus step down from glory, become a man, humble himself, and pay the very price of his own blood that he might purchase unto himself a prized possession, you and I? That's a beautiful thought too, and a very powerful truth in the scripture, that we are a treasure to the Lord. You are of great value to him. Think of the price that was paid. Did God send an angel? Did God send just some ambassador, he sent his son. He gave the very best. He paid the highest price for you and me. That speaks of value. That speaks of treasure. That speaks of a pearl of great price. Paul said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I want to encourage you today. You are a treasure to the Lord. God is not just tolerating us. God is not just reluctantly letting us into the kingdom. All right, I guess I have to. God loves us. God came for you. He pursued you. He's the initiator. God started this relationship. He came after us. The Bible says in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. And I believe that's the way it's supposed to work. I believe there's to be a mutual treasure. He treasured us. He valued us enough to come and die on a cross for our sins. And having been loved that way, who else would love us like that? Who else would care about our lives like that? Having been touched by that kind of love, my heart now treasures him. I love him so because he loved me so. We are a mutual treasure. I am the Lord's treasure and he is mine. 
And this is a beautiful way to view this par- these parables. You can, you can take it either way and find good truth for your heart today. Value the Lord, love on Him, treasure Him, but recognize that He loved you first. You were a treasure to Him, and that's why He came for you. That's why He's given His very best for you and I. I want to respond with my best for Him. Weak, as feeble, and as frail as it is, Lord, I offer it to you. May it be useful in your kingdom by your grace. Let's pray. Father, we, we are encouraged today to see insight into the kingdom, insight into your mind and plan. We recognize, Lord, that we are, we are living between advents when you first came and when you will come again. And during this time, Lord, we recognize we are wheat amongst the tares. We know that we must remain vigilant. We, we know that we must be mindful that we are salt and light in a darkened generation and time. Help us, God, to be faithful. Help us, God, to to be mindful and sober and alert. But Lord, we are also encouraged today to be reminded about the treasure that we are to you and the treasure that you have become to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Help me to love you. Help me to respond to you in a way that is worthy of you. Help all of us, Lord. Thank you for so great a love that has saved us and rescued us. We love you, Lord, with all of our hearts. As our heads are bowed here and we, we finish in prayer, I do want to give an opportunity, if you're here today and you need to respond to the Lord, maybe that you are here today and you do not know the Lord in this personal and intimate way but he's speaking to your heart right now, maybe more profoundly than you've ever heard him speak before. I love you. You are a treasure to me, a pearl of great price. Will you receive me? Will you receive the forgiveness that I have for you? Will you turn from your ways? Will you repent? Will you confess? Will you acknowledge your need to be saved today? Because I'm here and ready. I'd like you to come into the harvest. I'd like you to be part of the wheat that I'll be gathering in the end of the age. I'd love to pray for you if that's your heart today. Maybe you're here today and you need to rededicate your life. Maybe maybe you lost sight of just what kind of treasure you were to the Lord. Maybe because of life or trial or trouble, you've become distracted, separated from His love and And God's speaking to you today, and it's a fresh reminder of how much He loves you. And that's stirring something in you. That's sparking something in your heart. Lord, I need to come back and not only receive your love, but rededicate and recommit my love to you and make you once again a treasure in my heart. I'd love to pray for you too if you just need that, that rededication. So if you're here today, you want to receive Christ for the very first time, or you would like to rededicate and recommit your life to Him, I'm asking you simply to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me see you, and I want to pray for you. Bless you. I see a hand in the very back. 
Anyone else? The Lord's speaking to you. From my right, God bless you. Far left edge there. You're in the center. God bless you as well. Another hand, the rear there. God bless you. Any others? Lord speaking to you, I'm just going to pray, but just before I do, anyone else? Just, amen. Amen. I'm, just, I'm going to wait a minute. I think the Lord's speaking. I think the Lord's drawing. He loves you. I want you to be a part of this, this prayer harvest even now. Anybody else today? And so, Lord, for these that have responded to you today, we ask that you would meet them with your love and with your grace. God, we would come with our hearts, those that have responded, and we would simply say, Jesus, please forgive me. Please receive me, Lord, not because I'm worthy in myself, but because you love me. Because you died on that cross for my sin and you rose from the dead even now that you might invite me to a relationship with you. I want to become part of your wheat harvest. I want to become one of those that will shine like the sun in that day. Oh, what a future, what a hope you've promised. So God, cleanse me and help me to live for you even in this life, looking for your return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.